McDonald, thanks for joining us in the studio today. Hey, thanks for having me. So Kyle is an industrial designer. He works at School, School Candy right now and has worked at other companies like Power Practical and is a graduate from the University of Utah MDD program. Multidisciplinary right? design, yeah. And um, I actually haven't met, well, let's see, I should take that back. I, I met Kyle at his senior show for the MDD program three years ago, and that was the one and only time we kind of like connected. But um, we, we don't really know each other, so that's cool. I'm, I'm excited to get to know Kyle through 20 questions today. So this is 20 questions on Design Lake City, and let's just get to it. Cool, let's do it. So first question, what design has notably improved your life? I recently had a baby. I have a 10-month-old baby. Oh, okay. Congrats. Um, thanks. She's so cute and like so fun to have around. And oh. I don't regret anything yeah. about that decision in my life. <laughs> That's such a dad thing to say, but I love it. Oh, uh, sure. I mean, yeah. let's just kick it off. I'm dad. I'm yeah. dad Kyle. But you have to like accumulate a lot of stuff. For sure. When you have a baby. And we, uh, the only thing that we really spent any money on was our stroller. And it's um, called the Yo-Yo. I don't remember the name brand, but it's called the Yo-Yo. Okay. And the thing packs up so tiny. It's like one motion and it Ooh. has everything you need. It's the only stroller that's like approved for, approved by the FAA to be a carry-on item. Oh. Yeah. And like you can get it in the overhead? Yeah. Oh, It's nice. super tiny. And I mean, it costs us a little bit of money, but it's unbelievably convenient to have such a tiny and quality product when you also are dealing with such a tiny soft smelly product <laughs> as in a baby in diapers yeah exactly i love it okay that's a great answer from for designer dads <laughs> yeah all the designer dads out there yeah okay question two what is a design trend you hope dies in the year 2020 design stagrams I think would Does be it, my answer to Okay, that. what is that? Ah, man, I just personally, let's just get this out on the record. I don't use social media. Yeah, um, I had a hard time tracking you down. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't participate really in social media. And the design Instagram community is this weird, like, I don't know, the, the P, am I allowed to say bad words on it? Yes. You? It feels like such a circle jerk to me. <laughs> I feel you. Like, I do a pretty sketch and I, so do I. Yeah. Like, hey, like my stuff. Yeah, yeah. It almost feels like you have to have a presence on Instagram to be a legit designer, and I feel like right. that's such a superfluous thing, and I mm -hmm. hope that as we move forward as designers, we mm -hmm. find other ways to connect and promote Yeah, to me, it doesn't feel like industrial design. It's just kind of like design or sketching, and that's fine, but to call like what, what people are doing on Instagram like industrial design, where it's like really like killer renderings, yeah. that's great. But it's not the industrial process of industrial yeah. design to me. So. I mean, some of my really, really good friends and colleagues have pretty successful design Instagrams. And mm -hmm. I love these people. And what they're doing for themselves and for the community that they participate in is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on people who are trying to make their way. Sure. And it, it, it also sort of creates the taste you know, that we're all supposed to agree is cool. Like the collective consciousness oh, and designing yeah. for designers. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that isn't really benefiting actual design. Mm. Question three, what's your greatest indulgence or your like guilty pleasure that you don't want to tell anybody except for now on the podcast? I'm actually not very ashamed of this one, but Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Call Me Maybe. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. So she's super well known for Call Me Maybe. Yeah. But if you listen to any of her albums, like her full length albums, uh-huh. in 2015, she made an album called Emotion, which I think is still among the best pop albums of our generation. Okay. And then just this year, she released another one called Dedicated, I think. Uh-huh. And it's just a banger. Like she has, like, she sees pop music in a way that other pop artists can't see it. It's this weird, like, and it's like when you read about her, her online. Every headline is like, Carly Rae Jepsen's album is actually good. Like people yeah. are surprised it's good, but yeah. it's actually so good. And every time I get a new pair of headphones, I listen to Carly Rae Jepsen to make sure they sound good. <laughs> like her awesome. music rips. It's so good. All right. That's why I like doing this because I always learn something new. I wouldn't have gone, you know, stepped up to that album. Um, like my, So one of mine is like Ariana, Ariana Grande. Sure. I think the music bumps too in the same sure, way. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But Carly Rae Jepsen, Jepsen. Okay. Question four is always the same question, which is about your background story. And the question is, how did you get your start? And so we want to know kind of like about your schooling and your, your training and you know, some of your early jobs we've talked about a little bit. But like, yeah, how did you get your start in industrial design? Industrial design took a long time to make its way around. And I didn't even realize that I'd been doing product, like physical product design pretty much my whole adult life until huh. I started school as like a 28 year old. Like I didn't start in like design school until I was like 27 or 28. Okay. I don't even remember how old I was. Mm. I went to school in Bellingham, Washington, straight out of high school at Western Washington University because I wanted to snowboard at Mount Baker. And if you're aware like anybody listening knows about snowboarding mount baker is like it's supposed to be pretty good yeah. it's something man it'll change your life uh. so i went to school there and i went for business because all my aptitude tests in high school told me i should be an engineer and my dad was an engineer and i was like i got to do something different so i went to business school because i thought i'm pretty competitive maybe and this sounds kind of cool i have a <laughs> lot of good ideas i think and maybe i'll be an entrepreneur or something but I was so bored in business school that while I'm like studying math and stuff, I'm also doodling. And I came up with this idea for a sweatshirt for snowboarding that I had never seen before. Hmm. And it was this thing, it was like a hoodie that had basically a bandana built into it to like block your face. And I thought it was just really stylish. And there was somebody in my dorm room, she had a sewing machine and she was like, let's try to make it. And so she showed me how to use a sewing machine and I made it and I wore it the next day. And it was so hideous. It was like a red sweatshirt with like a rainbow bandana in it. And it was just so silly. Uh-huh. And I didn't know how to back tack or anything. So like the threads were coming out by the end of the first day. Uh-huh. But I had so many people stop me on campus. Like literally dozens of people were like, what are you wearing? Hmm. Like it was so flashy that people were like, what is that? How can I get one of those? Yeah, all of that stuff sounds intentional. All like the hanging threads and everything. Yeah, I don't know what it, what it yeah. was about it. But people were like, that's pretty cool. I want, to, I want in on that. And uh-huh. so me and a friend decided like, let's run with this and see what happens. And we actually had a clothing company designing sweatshirts and accessories for snowboarders from scratch Hmm. for five years or something and it became sort of a thing you know it's cool so I decided I wanted to get into design I thought and then um, I ended up in Salt Lake City going to business school again because Hmm. I talked to a mentor who owned a clothing company he was like if you want to design clothes go to design school if you want to run a clothing line go to business school yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll go to business school. And I moved out here because I wanted to snowboard. I wanted to be closer to mountains. Yeah. Moved out here, went to business school. Um, and it felt like such a waste of time. Mm. And I just really hated it to the point that I stopped. I like killed my business. Like I, I didn't want to do it anymore. The oh, way it was like, they were like, it like backfired. Yeah, it didn't <laughs> work out. So I sort of killed the company. And then 
I ended up getting a job after I graduated from business school as this like really like an executive assistant at an old folks home company that sort of killed ate my soul you know mm. it's just really bad work environment and my like co-workers were all middle-aged women who counted down the days until friday like i'd come yeah. around monday and be like hey linda how's it going and she's my favorite person there sat next to me in the cubicle next door she'd be like oh it's going really good only four days to friday like this oh. is your life like, yeah shoot me yeah for real so i was there for like 16 months and i i quit and i was like i think i want to go back to school and I want to study like psychology and maybe a little bit of film and some web and graphic design because those were the things that I sort of had to teach myself owning a snowboard brand. Yep. And I was like, I want to keep doing that stuff. But I, I'm also really interested in like what's going on in the human brain. And I found out that the University of Utah had a way that you could like design your own major. Yeah. I've so I that. went and I talked to a counselor and I was like, these are what I'm in. This is what I'm into. And this is what I want to learn. Yep. Can we design a major out of this? She was like, we could, but there's this new program. It's only a couple of years old. It's called multidisciplinary design. And let me show you some of the classes. And there was a lot of design classes. Mm-hmm. There was psychology classes, some physical stuff like drawing. And I, I drew, but I wasn't very good at drawing. Yeah. And so I was like, well, yeah, I'll try that. That sounds perfect. And so I didn't know industrial design was a thing, but one of my first classes that I attended there was a sketching class. And within two weeks, I like felt like I was good at drawing suddenly. Yeah. I was like, this is unreal. Success. And then I, Learned about industrial design and fell in love with the process and the program. And even though I'd been designing and selling products for like 10 years and I, I was way into art, I had a studio at the old pickle factory for three years. Oh, dang. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't really, I don't know what they're doing at that place now. But yeah. It looks like they're renovating it. Yeah. It's like all shuttered up. Yeah. I miss that place. It's such a magical place. Yeah. But I had like these industrial sewing machines there and I was keeping everything going. I was always dreaming of new brand ideas and designing new products and designing new clothing. And then I found this program and fell in love with it. And uh, it's fun to go back to school. This, the University of Utah is my fifth university. And so after you've gone to school for a really long time in a lot of different places and ways, you like, finally this time I was serious about it. And yeah, I was like, yeah, I actually yeah. love this. Yeah, you have that level of maturity that yeah. you're ready to like buckle down and like yeah. get the work done. And I just yeah. like... There were some frustrations, it being a young program, there's some growing pains. Sure. But, you know, it, like, really set me on a course I was excited to commit to, you know. And now I'm an industrial designer. Yeah, 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 you are. Yeah. Um, I think, like, when you start getting paid to do industrial design, you can call yourself one, right? Yeah, I guess so. I want you to describe... One project that you should be known for thus far, or like one of your favorite projects? It would be the Luminoodle, uh-huh. which was the first product I ever commercialized. Right, with, actually, uh, with Power, Practical. Power Practical. Yeah. I found Power Practical, it was the summer before that I like submitted my application to the design program at the University of Utah. Uh-huh. I went in there like, hey, I want an internship. I know I'm going to need some real world experience and I don't want to mow lawns anymore. Mm-hmm. Can I work here? And they were like, well, we don't, we don't really like having interns because you have to like kind of babysit them. Sure. I was like, you're not going to have to babysit me. I'll work for free. Just like, what are you working on? I want to help. Yeah. And I kind of begged my way in there. And so after the interview, they were like, well, we have this problem. We want to light a tent up and we have access to this like strip of lights, LEDs we can't figure out an elegant way to make it usable. Yeah. And so that day I like went into their shop. They had this big garage, like a roll roll up door garage connected to their office. Uh. 
and it had a bunch of tools and a bunch of random supplies and they were QC testing all sorts of stuff in there and I went in there and I found some raw materials and I cut it all up and I found the glue to stick silicone to silicone and Ooh. I started mocking up a few ideas and then I went on vacation for like a week and when I came back my ideas hadn't been touched but they had assumed that this guy has it he's going to come up with the idea and they started moving forward with the other parts of the project like the business case and all that stuff oh cool so then I designed the product over the next couple of weeks and um, they launched it on Kickstarter in conjunction with Outdoor Retailer and I think it did like over 400000 and it kind of reshaped their business and then uh, like a year later the MoMA Design Store contacted Power Practical like hey we like this oh, product shit. Can, it's in MoMA? It's in MoMA Design nice. Store yeah. Like, can we sell this? And our mutual friend Wafik he called me I was actually in the studio at the U called me and was like hey I I just want to make sure that you're cool with this. MoMA called and they want to sell the Luminoodle. I'm like, you're shitting me. Like you're pulling my leg. There's no way this is real. He's like, no, 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 no. I like, I just got off the phone with them. They want to sell the Luminoodle. That's cool with you. Right. And I lost it. And I like ran around the studio. <laughs> I'm sure some of the students are like, what kind of yeah. phone call is this? Like yeah. what kid is getting a call like that at school? The best kind. Oh yeah. It was really something. Question six. What's something you've learned the hard way that you'd like to share or help other, you know, other listeners avoid? I, I think every designer sort of hopes to or ends up in like a freelance situation. And my first freelance job I ever did I was in way over my head. I was like a junior in school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took on this job and I quoted it, didn't know what I was doing. And the terms of the deal, I like made it really good for them and not very good for me. Right, just to close it. Yeah. And then I had to end up bringing another guy on to help out with it. And I know. our partnership was really cool. It was productive. Um, I'm really glad that he was there. But at the end of the day, we pretty much lost money on the deal and they weren't happy with the product. And what I learned, I think, was it's so much easier to do a freelance job when you can be super transparent and you sort of have to see the future a little bit to do that. But being really, really transparent and finding a way to create space between you and the client throughout the process and in the beginning deal is so important. And in that case, it was like every single step of the process, I was showing him the progress. Right. Giving him way too much choice and autonomy. Eh. And the way that we structured it financially was shitty for us. Uh. The way we quoted it was based on how much time we thought it was going to take. And then we set up like a really affordable hourly rate so that he would accept the deal and then we didn't we felt really really guilty about ever upping right the you, quote you weren't able to ask for the more hours that you were spending yeah exactly um ever since then i've had a number of freelance projects and i'll never quote it based on hours yeah again because it's just like you put yourself under way too much pressure right you work more than you want to work you get paid less than you want to get paid i'm totally with you like because it, it, it can stunt like the creative process too like if you're unwilling to take on like critique or like or changes that even might be like really good changes that the client's asking for if you're like well we're at, you know i'm already at the hours that i you know agree to then you're you're gonna be in trouble so yeah i'll, I'll do the same thing like i'll just be like okay well here, you know we agree to this many hours but if you want more that you know here's my hourly rate and that's just yeah. how it is and yeah usually that works out you just have to establish that yeah in the beginning i try to be really really uh transparent now so question seven, do you have a favorite like replenishing tip or like a way to recharge your soul when you're not designing? Uh, right now at Skull Candy, I'll like take a lap on my skateboard. 
around the upstairs it's like this big loop building inside yeah so with there's windows around the whole building no way there's probably as many skateboards in the building as there are people. Okay. It's like really, really common. That's not surprising, but yeah. So I'll like take a quick lap. If I need a little more than that, I'll go skate the mini ramp or I'll play ping pong or something. Yeah. So there's like those little things just yeah. to keep yourself going throughout the day. That's cool. It's easy to burn out like four or five hours into a SolidWorks model or something. Oh yeah. Like those are the little things, but I feel like there's also like a much longer wave length of creative inspiration and design motivation. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think what gets me the most excited is to just, I like to try to structure my process. So I'm spending a long arc with the physical product. And then I do a long arc of conceptual, um, really heady, Mm -hmm. deep dive research into whatever the issue is now, whether Mm -hmm. it's for a product or whether it's for a new standard at work or Mm -hmm. um, if I just want to understand like a niche culture, Mm. I'll just go really deep into trying to understand the human experience from a certain perspective. And once that gets really, really heady and really hard for me to grasp and I have a lot of information, I switch back to product. Yeah, then you can start sketching. It's sort of this ebb and flow between cool. deep dive yeah. research and, con- and conceptual thinking yeah. into very concrete industrial design. Mm. I like think, I like how you think of those in big chunks, like w- one week, one one month chunks or how uh, it depends sometimes on sort of what the workload is. Yeah. Um for for instance earlier this year we were on a lot of design sprints and we were spending 2-3 weeks working 10 plus hour days sometimes all night mm-hmm. to get physical like forms out the door. Yep. And then there's times where we don't have that going on and I might spend 2 or 3 months managing a research project. Right, right. If you can control that, if you have the luxury of sort of picking what you work on, that would be sort of my ideal thing is like two or three weeks of physical product, two or three weeks of research. Mm. It doesn't always shake out that way when you're working for the man, but Skull Candy's super flexible and kind of allows us to spend the time where we think it's important to spend the time. And I still always find even on a sprint project that might be four weeks, mm. a four week timeline for a product design, I'll still take two weeks to research it. And I honestly feel like that, that taking that, two weeks to do the research at the beginning instead of taking that two weeks to sketch an ideate i get to the same place and sometimes i think i get there even more efficiently and quicker because i'm listening and asking questions mm-hmm. instead of making assumptions on paper mm-hmm. you know what i mean totally. so i'm always trying to like sequester large chunks of time to just sit in my head yeah, yeah, yeah. And to think and to listen and go out into the world and explore that's really cool i feel like this is like a good window into like the life of like an in-house designer where you've got those kind of like larger project spans right question eight do you have some goals as a designer goals or skills you want to develop i think every everybody wants to improve right everybody wants to just generally get better and enhance their portfolio and expand their reputation i would like to maintain and continue to grow in my hard skills like sketching is seems less and less important these days because you can ideate just as quick digitally and get real prototypes out super fast. So sometimes it doesn't make sense to like sit down with pen and marker and make something look beautiful and you can just mock it up and throw it in Keyshot. But I still, nothing feels better than when you hit that line perfect. Right. You know, when like it has a perfect thick to thin from start to middle and then middle to out, it goes thin again. Like, yeah, that's where I'm coming from too. Like for the love of it. Yeah. Like I, I always want that to be something that's growing and improving. Mm -hmm. But I think, if I was going to pick something that, like, I think most of my design goals are in more of the collaborative vein, I'd like to become a really great 
collaborator. Hmm. Um, I feel like it's really important, especially my experience as an in-house designer at Skull Candy working for a corporation where the difficulty is that everybody's good at their job and everybody has a different background and everybody was trained with sort of a different vernacular, Yeah. but everybody has the same goal, right? We want to have a successful brand. Collaborating when there's so many nuances between how people work and how people mm. think, uh, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. And I feel like designers so often are designing for other designers. Yeah, for sure. And it's really easy when you're working with a bunch of designers to work to impress the other designers on your team. Yeah. Or you're making, you're designing something really well because you want to show it to your next hiring manager at your next job and it, it'll look good in your portfolio and you want that design director to be like, wow, yeah, that's a, that, that, that guy's a good designer. I want to develop my skills not for that reason, but so I actually can make really, really great solutions actually happen in the real world. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many people are making really pretty designs and then they don't translate to the real world or they might fail or not even launch but they'll still go show their what they made, what they designed, their intent. Sure. That's important. There's a place for that. Like, we need to know what we're intending to do. But I think the measure of a designer is so much, so much hinges on if their intent is realistic and mm. if they can create a beautiful design with the constraints of reality. Yeah, yeah, where execution is the yeah. end goal. And collaboration is so crucial to a solid execution because yeah. you can't do it yourself. Okay, a few more rapid-fire questions. Bring it. All right, so what is your all-time favorite movie? I feel like this would be a better guilty pleasure answer. But, <laughs> yeah, your favorite guilty pleasure movie. Um, La La Land is like seriously okay. probably, it probably had the greatest impact on me of any movie. I've Are seen. you a jazz fan? or I love jazz. Okay. The first time I watched it and the second time and the third time I watched it, I cried two times. <laughs> The same places. Oh I'm gonna have to rewatch this movie. You should. <laughs> okay. Uh, another. Who's your favorite designer? I don't know. There's a few that I look up to for sure. different reasons. Okay. Um, ideologically, I'd say Bruno Munari. Okay. He's an Italian guy from the 50s, mm -hmm. and we'll, we might end up talking more about him. He's actually really helped to shape my design philosophy. Okay. That's cool. Um, Jasper Morrison. Right. One of my um, favorites. He's really cool. I love Donald Judd. I, I've been meaning to ask some Salt Lake questions. So what's a design in Salt Lake that you love? I moved to Salt Lake like eight or nine years ago. I think it was in 2011, like summer, end of summer 2011. Mm -hmm. So about eight years ago, exactly. Um, and I've been coming here a long time. I was actually born in Provo. Okay. I was raised LDS. And so we would always come and look at the temple. We'd go to Temple Square. Right. As like part of our, we our, we had family here and stuff. We'd come visit family and we'd always go to Temple Square. Cool. And I was always like, wow, that's pretty cool. But it wasn't until I came back as an adult and started living here that I realized like the magnitude of that structure. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Like, yeah, man. I mean, it's beautiful and yeah. basically without blemish. And it was built by hand. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> like it just takes my breath. Where and when and how do you find inspiration? I just try to keep my ear to the ground, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, I spend a lot of time, I, I allow myself to get sort of lost in cultures and, you know, things around the edges. That's so, something that I learned from the director of MDD, Cord Bone, mm -hmm. real good guy. Um, he always, like, really pushed us to go wider in our research or whatever, like, to get, to go bigger and wider to always look around the edges. He said the, ed the essence is in the edges. Huh. 
instead of looking directly at something like explore the fringe right so that's kind of what i do i like spend a lot of time letting myself get drawn away from the obvious into sort of the obscure and and like what medium are you at like on the internet or you're yeah. like in the library or? i i look at the internet a lot i try to s- surround myself with people who are introducing me to new stuff all the time a mm. lot of my friends are artists mm. musicians that's cool um so going out and supporting events different art mm-hmm. events and stuff yeah cool but yeah like it I mean, YouTube is a treasure trove. Yeah. There's so much in there. Um, but I, I get a lot of inspiration, too, from travel, from mm-hmm. nature. Um, I try to go surfing a few times a year, and that's cool. a really good way to just, like, disconnect and re- like from the world you live in and reconnect to the world we sort of avoid yeah. you know, nature. So how do you approach research? And this is a good question, kind of like an in-house designer. Like, how do you approach research for for the design phase if you're going to ask the people that i work with or the people i went to school with people who know my process well they would probably tell you that like that's my strong suit as a designer is Mm -hmm. research i've actually spoken in a few universities about it my process is incredibly research intensive but research for me can inform not just what to make but how you make it how it looks the form it takes Mm -hmm. the way it's being used so I talked about Bruno Munari before. Right. He wrote a book called Design as Art. It's an incredible book. It informs so much of the way I think about design. Cool. But he said that like the form of an object should arise spontaneously from its function. And we've all heard form before function, right? Like, Or form follows function, sorry. Yeah, form yeah. follows function is like the classic mid-century minimalist mantra. But this one was like the most passive I've ever heard it. Form should just arise spontaneously from its function. Huh. That's like so passive that yeah. it really struck me. Like, really? Like, what's my job as a designer? And if that's the truth, and I do, I do subscribe to that idea. Okay. You have to really, really intimately understand function. Yeah, yeah. And so my job as a designer then is to explore and to research and to listen, in order to get such an intimate understanding of a products or an objects physical or physical utility or function and it also it's emotional utility and function and it's cultural utility and yeah function. and if i spend the a large part of my process getting to know all of the implications of the function of this product then the form will arise uh-huh. spontaneously right it's kind of magical but it's really just science yeah well so, it just it just kind of like gets con- constrained to do it into that space right yeah, into the yeah. venn diagram of like that sweet spot yeah right? exactly so the next question is a good counterpoint question. How important is drawing or sketching? Like how how do you use drawing in, in your process? I think drawing is indispensable. I actually, the IT department listens to this podcast. They'll be pissed off. When I first got the job there, I was like begging for a Cintiq because I'd never had one before. Yeah. And so, and they were backordered and they're like $3,000. Yeah. And I was like, come on, I want the Cintiq. I want the Cintiq. Yeah. And I got it. I never use it. No way. Like, for me, there's nothing like pen on paper yeah, yeah. to think. Like, I'm still a visual person. I don't right. think I would be a designer if right. I wasn't a visual person. Yeah. So sketching and drawing and illustrating is crucial, I feel like, to the design process. Cool. But for me, it's much more about thinking and less about presentation. Yeah. And communicating, too. Like, I spend right. a lot of my time sitting down with, in sketch sessions with engineers or clients yeah. and just saying, like, like, let's explore this idea. And I yeah. just whip it out. So do you have certain uh, specific rituals that make up your design process? Like, do you have a, a, rut- a routine that enhances your 
creativity? Not really. Okay. I feel like, I, I mean, I think that the process is really important. You have to really enjoy your process. And I think that you cannot really own the things that you design. You can only own the process by which you design them. Yeah, because once you release it to the world, the world gets to decide whether it's beautiful or ugly. Yeah. They get to decide if it's like accomplishing its task or if it is a bad design. But if you own your process and you work on your process, then you'll be happy with your work all the time. Right. And so I definitely have a process that is repeatable, but I think a hallmark of my process is its fluidity more than its rigidity. Uh. It's always changing. It's flexible. Right. I employ different skills at different times for different right. purposes. Do you have like a favorite tool, like a physical or digital tool? Um, that's kind of like secret that you want to, you want to share hmm. with the audience. I'll just give you a fun one. This is sort of one off. Okay. We're working on a thing at Skull Candy. It's sort of like a heady, one of those heady research projects. Uh-huh. And we got to a point where we had uh, a list of words to describe the thing that we're trying to get to the center. Of. We're trying to find the essence of this thing. Cool. Um, and we were like, okay, now everybody take this and this is your prompt. Make one page of something creative. And it was an opportunity for all of us to employ whatever tool we were comfortable with right. or that we wanted to challenge ourselves with to dig into this idea or this list of ideas. Okay. I decided to write haikus. Yeah. So I wrote three haikus for each thing. It turned out to be something like 21 or 27 haikus. Oh, wow. And um, they range from like ridiculous and funny to like incredibly weird and con- conceptually poetic. Yeah. But it was so hard to do. Yeah, it was a stretch, and, right? It, yeah, and it was like, just like a challenge my, challenging myself to think about it in a new way is kind of the whole point of iteration. You're trying to open and unlock new possibilities. And by deciding, I'm not going to use a traditional tool. I don't want to use a mood board. I don't want to yeah. use a 3D modeling program. I don't want to sketch this. I want to like twist my brain in a way I don't normally twist it and write poems. Yeah, And it's it opened me up so much to like what the essence of these things were that I was exploring. In, that I couldn't have done in another way. So that's an example of a fluid design process and like utilizing new tools all the time. That's cool. On to the last five questions. Cool. Uh, this, this has is, been really cool, man. Yeah, right on. This is, I know we could like do this like all night probably. I'm sure. So this is the pontification question or section, excuse me. So question 17, how can design save the world? Design to me is sort of the marriage of purpose and art or like science and art. Uh-huh. I'm sure everybody would sort of, they've, we've all heard something like that before. And if everybody was curious and asking more questions and being more exploratory and focused on making the beautiful solution instead of the easy solution, right. the, it would save the world. So I think huh. in that way, if everybody thought like designers, like, let me ask everyone, let's pull, let's pull the audience, you know, figure out what people need and then focus on making it beautiful. I think the world would be a better place. Just <laughs> like cool. science and beauty are like what we need. Yeah. And I love that idea of like asking more questions, just ask more like, Yeah, because they're going to lead to like some kind of exploration and some, some, you know, attempt at solutions. Right. Yeah. What do you think designers will be doing in the future? I think it depends on the political situation we're in, to be honest with you. Uh. Um, I think that designers will always be 
necessary to make the things like the material things that humans need. But I think that designers ultimately uh, where we're going, I think is we're going to see designers and design thinking, influencing policy and uh, a lot bigger thinking than just decorating electronics. I feel like, and, and that's sort of like tying into that last question, like an empathic approach that's willing to fail that kind of thinking and flexibility is so useful in the bigger and more complicated conversations that are happening around the world. Right. And so maybe this is just a personal aspiration that I hope that my design education and my design experience will guide me into some of those rooms with more important people making more important decisions. And I hope more designers feel that way. It's kind of like clicking for me, like, um, so design thinking, right. And if you're in design, especially industrial design, you, you, you're probably aware of design thinking and there's a lot of critique around design thinking or criticism Mm -hmm. because it's like this formula that supposedly, you know, can, you know, you check all the boxes and anybody can be a designer. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of designers are intimidated or they just don't like the idea of like other people being able to do their job. And, And I get that. But like what you said made me think like, okay, well it's not, it's not for other people trying to like, create a bottle or like a cell phone it's like use the design thinking model to to solve other problems you know right political problems education mm-hmm. healthcare that's that's where it maybe becomes interesting all right so you this is optional do you is there a myth about design that you want to debunk i don't think design is like a you have it or you don't thing i think yeah. it can be totally learned yeah and it can be mastered right. and i'm uh, i think i'm a testament to that my two older brothers are like born with it you know, my oldest brother is a musician. The other one's a visual artist and they're incredible. And the musician became a graphic designer and is running off and being very successful. And my visual artist brother is also just super talented and gifted. And he paint, he's basically painted every sign in Tacoma, Washington, <laughs> super accomplished as a, as a visual artist Yeah, doing manual, like hand painting. And that's cool. And I always felt like I was left in the dust. I didn't have the gene, but I found industrial design and, I realized it's not a gene. Yeah. It's like a commitment and you can have it if you want it. And right. that I think is the myth that it's not something you have. It's something you like earn or acquire. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Especially like drawing, like people like think that like they, they can do it or they cannot. And I, yeah. I always like want to disagree and it's just like, hold on. It's like anything else. It's practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you just have to do it and practice mm-hmm. and then you can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want, I want to end with a few more solid like, oriented questions sure so the 19th question is what makes salt lake city a good place to design salt lake is kind of a small town Mm -hmm. with like big city britches what i mean by that is like you you can know everybody and have friends in high places pretty easily in salt lake city but also there's nowhere else around here for music and art to travel through right they have to stop and like spend the night. Yeah, here. you got to stop and spend the night. So we <laughs> yeah. get like a lot of really, really good creativity here. And then you add to that the social tension of the far hard right, super religious, and also like one of the highest per capita gay communities and most progressive communities in America. That tension creates this really cool environment for challenging the status quo huh. and um, taking risks cool. because it's we're small enough that if you fall, you're not going to fall too hard. You know, it's not too hard to make a living here. It's not too hard to take a risk and go a month without a paycheck. Huh? Cause it's like affordable. Yeah. But still there's a lot of reason to like 
push the envelope. Right. And there's a lot of people trying to do that. Um, you know, the, the beehive state, you know, that it's sort of in the water here that people are ambitious. Yeah, yeah. And they work hard to, like, make their mark. There's a decent work ethic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So where is your happy place in Salt Lake outside of, like, the home or the office? Provo Beach. Okay. <laughs> I'm just where, kidding. <laughs> is that a BYU? Where is that? It's, no, it's a joke. Okay. It's, a, it's like one of those flow riders, and like a fake surf. Oh, I got you. No, which for me, sounds fun. It, but, they yeah. are pretty funny. Yeah. They're actually more funny than they are fun. Okay. Like watching people wipe out on those things is gotcha. Precious. So waiting in line is cool. Yeah. Um, no, I would say um, the in, snowboarding, you know, almost okay. anywhere. Yeah, you yeah. can find a pocket in any place, but I love Brighton. Yeah. Um, Brighton's the best for snowboarding. Oh, right? man, it's so good. And it's cool because there's so much access just right off of the lift like you can hike five or ten minutes up from the crest crest lift oh right yeah like a moment and some of the best turns of your life are like a five minute walk yeah like what it's just uh, it's transformative to have this great of access to great snowboarding and snowboarding is what brought me out here uh, and it's sort of what sustains me through the winters still even though my passions have sort of shifted more to like my creative pursuits. Oh, sure. And you have a kid now. Yeah, I have a kid now. Um, shout out to Tess. <laughs> um, if you're listening, baby, I love you. Just kidding. Not kidding. I do love you. <laughs> but Anyways, she's probably not listening. She's not. She, that's, she's 10 months old. She doesn't <laughs> yeah. even really have human ears yet. We'll come back to this in five years, Tess. Yeah. Come on back. But yeah, snowboarding here is all time. And that's sort of, I would say that's my happy place. Awesome. Hey, man, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I want to, like, you know, keep it up. So Yeah, man, this has been really, really fun. Yeah, um, definitely we'll, we'll post some of your resources and some of your ideas on, on the website. There'll be a section. Okay, cool. And I would like, yeah, to figure out a way that people can, like, um, engage in a conversation with you. So we'll, sure. we'll get on that. Yeah, I have a website. You can visit it there. My contact information is there. A couple of my projects. I'm always down to grab a beer or coffee, whatever. So hit me up. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.